vacation slideshow. I'm really glad to see that the PowerPoint worked because I was afraid that it wouldn't and that that joke would be totally ruined. Um, in reality, this won't be a vacation slideshow. Really, I'm about to tell you uh, all the stuff that Poncho just told you, but I'm going to take longer to say it. Vacation slideshow. So this is uh, from Chicago. This is Carissa and I went up there several years ago uh, when I went up there to run the marathon. And uh, the Wyndham Hotel there right in the middle is our hotel. And so, you know, I was so impressed with how tightly packed Chicago is that I walked over to, it's right on the Chicago River, by the way. This was a great place to be staying. So I'm standing on, the, on a bridge over the Chicago River looking back, you know, a block away toward our hotel. Um, what's kind of neat about this picture is, see on the, just to the right of the Wyndham there, the kind of tall old building with the gold trim at the top of it. Um, so that was built during Prohibition, and it is on purpose that it looks like a champagne bottle, uh, which is a wonderful piece of Chicago trivia that some architect wanted us to know how he felt about Prohibition, but that's not actually why I wanted to show you this picture. <laughs> I wanted you to see this picture because of this cool little building right there that was actually attached to our hotel. Uh, that little building that we kept walking, we've walked past it a dozen times while we were on this trip, uh, is the 17th Church of Christ Scientist in Chicago. And we walked by it and I kept pointing it out to Carissa because I thought it was hilarious. Their website to try to find the answer to that question. Um, I can't find any reference on their Wikipedia page, on their own website, on anywhere about why they gave themselves this name. I did find out that there are about 17,000, just over, um, Churches of Christ scientists. Uh, and so maybe this is just the 17th of 17,000, like you would number a painting or something. Um, I don't know. I never found it. But it, I thought it was funny when we kept passing it, enough that I kept pointing it out, uh, because my childhood was at the First Christian Church of Moore. Um, which, if you're not like big into Restoration Movement history, you might not know this, but the First Christian Church, or the Disciples of Christ, as they're also called, is like the other half of us. Um, so when the Restoration Movement happened in the 19th century, uh, a lot of um, people came back together because we were a Restoration Movement, uh, the whole idea being to reunify all of these uh, denominations that had formed over the centuries. Um, so we all came back together. We began trying to, um, as they say, use Bible words for Bible things. We began trying to use the Bible only as our basis for how we were going to do worship and leave behind creeds and all of those things. And then we very immediately separated again um, over some issues, the biggest of which being whether or not to use instruments in our service. The ones who were using instruments became the Disciples of Christ or the First Christian Church. And then we became the, uh, the, the Church of Christ, so we kept very similar names so that we would kind of sort of still look like brothers. Um, if you haven't been to any of those services, they do tend to be a lot more liturgical, but they believe a lot of the very base things that we do, like the importance of baptism for remission of sins, all of that stuff, um, which is, I guess, why this became such a, na a natural when I learned about the Churches of Christ when I was dating a girl in high school and her father was a preacher, um, I went, oh yeah, this, this makes sense. I think this is where I'll, I'll be. Uh, but anyway, that's longer than I wanted to talk about that. The point is, is that when I was a kid, I knew that churches called themselves the first Christian church to show that they were like the first one of them in the town usually. 
But I also knew from the very beginning, I don't know how I knew this, but, but that there was a kind of a hidden claim there too. That when a primitivist church calls itself the first, we're also saying we're like the real deal. Does that make sense? And that's not really overt, um, but I kind of understood that it was there. And so when we called ourselves the first Christian church, what we're also making the claim to is that we're the ones who are trying to go back to what the church once was. And so we're calling ourselves the first because that's what we want you to know about us, which is why it was so funny to me when I saw this and said, the 17th? Like, like they're admitting that they're not even close to the original anymore, that now they're just the 17th of something? And again, I don't have any idea if that's why uh, they called themselves that. Um, but it became a, a funny example to me of how often the church divides itself in order to get closer to what it thinks the truth is. And the way that we work so hard to very strangely distinguish ourselves from what we feel like came before us and what we feel like, um, what we feel like we're correcting when we sort of reform ourselves. And of course, you all know about denominationalism and how many de denominations there are. If we walk down 23rd Street, we're going to walk past six or seven churches with different names um, you know, out in front of them. And, and you're supposed to know by that name what flavor of Christianity this, this place is. But even within each denomination, we divide ourselves by denomination. Um, so in my years between the first Christian church and when I started dating a girl whose father was a Church of Christ preacher, uh, hey Bill, um, I kicked around going to a lot of Baptist church with my friends and stuff. Who, whichever youth group was kind of having the most fun, that's where I went. And so this being Oklahoma, that meant that I was going to a lot of Baptist churches because there are a lot of Baptist churches here. Um, the first one I went to was a Free Will Baptist church. I had no idea what that meant when I went there. Should I change it out? Okay. Huh? Sure. Move it to my shirt, he says. Okay. Um, what I learned was that other Baptists call them foot-washing Baptists because they do a lot of that, um, and that is true. I did a bunch of those where you would get together. It's actually a really meaningful um, experience, by the way, and you would do a foot-washing ceremony that came with a sermon about how Jesus did this and how that meant to humble ourselves. But in reality, the reason they were calling them free will Baptists, themselves free will Baptists, is because they were Baptists, but they wanted to move away from some of what they saw as the Calvinist uh, beliefs of mainline Baptists. And then there are primitive Baptists. I don't have any idea what they are. I don't know what the difference between a Southern Baptist and the other Baptists is. Um, I don't know those things. But I know that the Baptists call themselves a lot of different things. Um, Methodists, if you don't know this, Methodists are in the middle of dividing themselves very purposefully um, over issues that are really big to them. And right now they're having a lot of discussions about who gets to keep the name. I don't know if I should follow advice at this point or just use my theater voice. Thank you. <laughs> um, but the point is, is that this is something that has been ongoing throughout Christianity for a very long time. Um, this kind of this division, reforming, uh, etc. And these such divisions, or at least us having to discuss issues that are big to us that are divisive. Uh, are not new. This isn't just a modern thing or just an American thing. This has been uh, the case since the very first church. 
Um, we all know this in the New Testament, that the early church was, was having to um, think about what it believed and having a lot of conversations about this. So even the very first church that Paul is having to write to and having to figure out are dealing with issues that are potentially divisive for them, things that they disagree about. We know about those. Um, we know about um, the, the, early, um, the early issue of Christians deciding to name themselves based on who they follow. Because in 1 Corinthians, Paul has to talk about this. And he says, I want you to be unified. And what I'm hearing is that some of you are saying, I'm of Cephas, and I'm of Paul, uh, and I'm of Apollos, and I don't want you doing that. Um, so we know that from very early on, this is already happening. The first church is um, dividing itself over whether or not Christian men uh, who've converted um, should uh, be circumcised. Um, the Christian church is uh, having to decide whether or not it's going to allow Gentiles in in the first place. Um, they're dividing themselves about whether or not Jesus was an actual physical human being or if he was a spirit being who only appeared to be physical. And what we know from Paul talking to the churches is that some of these are very, very serious, um, like that last issue. Paul is very clear that to say that Jesus is anything but human is a heresy because it defeats entirely the purpose of what Jesus you know, came for. On the other hand, Paul has to address, address issues about whether or not it's okay to eat sacrificed meat by saying this doesn't actually matter as much as you think that it does. And so both things are happening. And the thing is, is that the people having those conversations don't always know which is which, right? The person who is upset about whether or not we should eat meat to, uh, that has been sacrificed to animals think that that's a really big issue because it, because it comes with a lot of sort of cultural baggage for them. Paul knows that, and so he has to tell them, sit with this for a minute, do what you feel is right, but don't hold other people to what you feel is right on this issue. So negotiating that isn't nearly as easy as we kind of think that it is. It is often not nearly as easy as just saying, well, I found the verse on that, um, though we wish that it was. And we know that's true from the beginning. We don't talk about any of those issues anymore because we consider them to be settled issues. Uh, and in fact, we understand that most of those issues aren't even culturally appropriate to us. Think about how strange it would be if we had an elder running around here asking men if they had been circumcised. Um, not only would it not make any sense in our culture to care about that, but that would be the problem. The problem wouldn't be anymore whether or not we think that we should be doing this. It would be, why do we have this guy running around asking people these highly personal questions? It's just not an issue anymore, so, so we don't think about it. And because of that, we can lose sight of how tricky these, uh, these decisions were for the early church. And we can lose the wisdom that we learned from how the church and how Paul dealt with these issues. And that's kind of what we're doing this morning. Um, of course, these issues have continued through history. It didn't skip from the first century to now. Um, such divisiveness has continued all throughout the history of Christianity. Obviously, the Protestant Reformation, you know, being, you know, perhaps the most obvious one. Um, but there was also deep divisiveness about whether or not we should begin translating the Bible into vernacular languages. Um, William Tyndale was actually executed for publishing a Bible in the English language because the church told him at the time that the uh, Bible should not be translated. It should be in God's language, which oddly was Latin uh, and not Greek or Hebrew where they were actually written in. But that was such a sacrosanct belief to them that they were executing people for it. Um, John Wycliffe, whose Wycliffe Bible is, uh, is you know, very famous, um, he got lucky. He died while he was awaiting trial. 
40 years after he was death, 40 years after he died, the church dug up his bones and burned his bones as punishment for having published a Bible in English. Again, we don't consider this an issue at all anymore. Nobody is arguing about whether or not we should be able to read the Bible in the language that we actually speak. Every now and then, you'll still find people arguing about which translation and whether or not it should still be King James, etc. Um, but no one's being put to death for this anymore. So um, these divisions have obviously continued throughout history, and so much so that Christianity has come to look like the next slide. This is a chart that I found the other day while I was trying to find something like this. Uh, I just Googled, like, denomination family tree, and this is what I found. Uh, this is a poster. Uh, that you can buy for $20. I'm not trying to sell it to you. I just think that it's funny that that's what it is. I did think about putting a big arrow on it that said, you are here, because we're right up in there. Um, but this is you know, kind of what this looks like. Obviously, there are a lot of claims um, in, this, in this chart because it's something that a guy made. There's actually an eight-episode YouTube series from this guy explaining how he made these connections and who he chose to put on here and why and who they're connected to, et cetera. Um, so we understand this in Christendom at large that this has happened. Um, but the history of Churches of Christ also contain issues that could be and have been divisive for us. Again, if you don't know a lot about church history um, or restoration movement history, you may not even know about some of these, particularly if you've been here for a very, very long time. Um, but issues that the Churches of Christ have had to wrestle with are whether or not communion should be taken with one cup or individual cups. Some of you might know about that. Um, my in-laws used to kind of lovingly call them the one-cuppers. Um, whether or not churches ought to uh, offer Bible classes outside of the worship service itself. Because after all, where do we find the scriptural authority to have a Bible class? Uh, most of us don't even know uh, that that's been an issue. What the church's relationship should missionary societies be like, um, etc. You know, these... these um, these kind of go on and on. Uh, re more recently, questions still arise for the church, as you guys all know. Um, I know, we, so we lived in Memphis before we came here. Uh, at the time, our church had just established a praise team where they put at least one person from each voice um, on a microphone so that people could hear their parts. Uh, very controversial when we started doing that there. Um, since then, a lot of churches in Tennessee have begun to re-ask the question over instrumental services. Enough so that about 20 or so churches over there as of several years ago, it's probably more than that now, have reintroduced or have introduced instrumental services into their worships to where you can go to the a cappella service like we all know and love at 9 or the instrumental service at 11. Um, which is interesting because it's almost a, like a rejoinder effort from the very beginning uh, when us and the disciples of Christ started to go uh, you know, our separate ways. But, but again, but the point is these issues continue to crop up. And when they're happening, because they're our issues, they feel very big and very dangerous. And some of them probably are. The struggle is how do we know which ones are and which ones aren't in the time frame that we think we have to make those decisions. Because two generations from now, some of the issues that we currently struggle with, some of the issues that existed a generation ago, are going to be considered settled questions. There aren't very many places that you go in the churches of Christ now where they're still taking from one cup. There are probably some, but I've never been to one. We, we begin to consider these settled issues only after we've struggled with the issue a lot first. 
And that's kind of where we're going today, is what do we do in the meantime? Um, because we know, ultimately, that it wasn't supposed to be this way, right? right? Like, we get that, but we don't always know what to do about it. So we'll get to the scripture that was our reading this morning will be like the conclusion. But you know from listening to that scripture that this unity stuff seems to be a pretty big deal to Jesus. This was in the book of John, the very last prayer that he prays when he knows that he is about to be executed by his government. That probably ought to suggest that this is personally important to Jesus Christ. The fact that it's such a big deal that on his very last night, he says, let them be united with me and then let the people who are going to believe in me because of them be united with them. And again, we're going to talk um, more about that toward the end, but we know it's a big deal. And yet, this is where we end up. And so when we talk about how do we become united, how do we do unity, we sort of have to start with, like, what does unity even mean? How is it even defined? Um, by the way, where this sermon kind of came from is that we had, uh, a year or so ago, we had a class down the hall where we, um, the whole class was just us talking about big social issues that our you know, children, that our friends were coming to us that we didn't feel like we had good answers for. And then wrestling through that, wrestling through scripture um, and how we begin to address those questions. And the very last week of that was, now what do we do? If we know that we still don't agree on some of these issues, how do we stick it out while we try to figure it out? And that became this class that is now this sermon. And so a couple of weeks ago, uh, I knew that I was going to have to give this sermon. Still wasn't sure what I was going to give it on. And Jimmy Keyes, uh, in his prayer, prayed for unity. And I thought, ah, that's where we should go. Because before we can like, start to work toward it, we should probably know what it is and how to get there. So what does unity even mean? We instinctively understand that it can't mean that we're going to agree on every single detail. We know that we don't. We know that we probably never will, no matter how hard we work on it. Both experience and scripture from those examples that we talked about earlier show that this isn't the case. And so how doesn't that graph that we just saw um, just happen? We also understand that unity can't just mean that we're always going to go along to get along, right? Um, we understand that doctrine is and has to be important. And so we're going to have to have discussions on it, and we're going to disagree about those. And some of them are going to be really big, and some of them are going to be things that we just think are really big. And that, again, a generation now are going to be settled. And this is, I think, where the breakdown exists. Because we have these two things happening at the same time that we're struggling with. We know that we're supposed to stay unified. And we know that we're supposed to get doctrine right. And so what do we do when those don't seem to match up? And I think that what happens is, over and over again, when we feel like we're forced between that decision, stay together or do what feels right, we pick do what feels right. We pick the doctrine. Because in our tradition, that's very important. And we have a tendency to, if we're weighing them between the two, believe that this one's more important, so it has to win. And so if these people are wrong, I'm not going to hell with them. I've got to go find some people who are right, right? 
And we may understand that it's not that dramatic, but we still tend to sort of behave as if it is. And so now, the rest of this morning is really a discussion on how to get that balance right, on how to understand that we have this obligation that Jesus gave us to remain united so that that graph doesn't keep happening, and we have an obligation to work toward our knowledge of Jesus to get the doctrine right, and that those things have to be equally important. And so now how do we do it? So, because it's a sermon, there are three principles. So principle number one, we must accept one another as Christ has accepted us. And for this, we'll go to Romans. We're going to jump around uh, Scripture a little bit here. But let's go to Romans. Um, this is 15, 5 through 7. Yeah, it's up there. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. So first Paul is going to give us a hint as to why this unity stuff is so important because he asks that we may be of one mind and one voice for the purpose of what? That's right. I knew that Alton would have it for me. For uh, the purpose of glorifying God. This is important for this reason. And then second, he gives us this instruction to accept one another as Christ has accepted us. Understand this isn't a flowery like empty set of instructions, this is actually a difficult instruction because how did Jesus accept us? He accepted us while we were still sinners. What that means is that Jesus accepted us and in fact died for us while we were still wrong about stuff. And not just wrong about stuff, but wrong about everything. So he accepted us before we got the doctrine right. And in fact, before we even knew that we were supposed to. That's a difficult instruction. Because it means that we might end up having to live for a while with somebody who isn't right. So, well, let's, okay. So I'll use a marriage analogy because I love them. Uh, If you're married, raise your hand. That's most of us because this is a Christian community. Great, you can put your hand down. Now, if the very first time you ever had a disagreement that you felt like was a pretty big deal, you went, nope, not going to make it, I'm out. Raise your hand. Yeah, I knew that you weren't going to raise your hand. I, knew, I also know that none of you actually did that. Um, but I knew there would be tremendous pressure in asking you to raise your hand. No, we know better than that. Because in our marriages, even in a world where... Divorce happens at a rate of over 50%, including in Christian communities. We understand that there's going to be stuff that this person brings with them that I don't like very much. But we don't run out, right? We might eventually, if it's big enough, I'm not going to. Oops, just so you, just so you feel secure about that. Um, but in our marriages, we understand this, don't we? That, uh, I mean, I'll tell you, we come from different families, Carissa and I. Um, you know, my father-in-law's here. I love them very much, but they're really different than me. And there's some stuff that she brought into our marriage that comes from them that I think is really strange. And here's the weirder part. She won't change. <laughs> like, like stubbornly. She's just not going to. But we understand 22 years later 
that we still have to stick it out through that. And there are things that we have changed for each other. And then other things that we say we're going to try, but we're not going to, right? And yet within the church, I'm afraid that sometimes it becomes very easy, particularly in a modern culture where there are churches all over the place, that we shop around really easily. We go into a place and we go, "Mm, I don't really like the way they do this. I'll go to the next place. Um, Which when you first move to a city is probably fine. Um, But at a certain point, you have to decide, these are my people, this is where I belong. And just like I would struggle through a marriage together, I'm gonna struggle with these people together. That has to be principle number one, that we love each other the way Christ loved us. And what that means is we love each other even before we've got it figured out. Okay, principle number two. I don't remember how I worded it up there. We find unity in Christ and dedication uh, to his teaching. Uh, This is kind of a long section, so we'll fly through it. This is Ephesians 4, uh, 2 through 16. I'll do a little skipping because it's so long. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Uh, Let's go to 14. Then we will no longer be infants. By the way, um, uh, what Paul talks about in here is that God is equipping us. Some of us are teachers, um, you know, some of us are evangelists, we're all sorts of things, and the purpose is um, to help equip us as as a church. Um, Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Paul again again begins here by connecting unity to love. Gentleness, patience, forbearance with each other. So he he starts this passage by saying, you know, we have to be united in love if we're going to have any chance to get this right at all. And then he goes on to say that Christ has appointed teachers so that we may reach unity in the knowledge of the Son of God. In other words, part of the path to unity is this love thing, and part of it is um, working to understand, seeking to understand Jesus' teachings together. Um, this maybe kind of feels a little bit too ironic to us because we all know that most of our arguments that cause divisiveness are over what we believe that Jesus is teaching us, right? None of us is arguing about, um, well, this is maybe not true. Our serious arguments are rarely about like the color of the carpet or whether or not we should have gotten rid of the weird pinkish color that this used to be. Um, it's, it's this important stuff. I mean, we're, we're, we're dividing ourselves over important things without a doubt. And what Paul says here is that there is a, um, that when the commitment to knowing Jesus is added to the commitment to one another, this act of seeking knowledge together is what begins to create unity. 
So how does this work? Because it feels disparate. It feels like these are uh, at tension with each other, this love each other and seeking knowledge at the same time. Uh, so principle number three, which really shouldn't be its own principle, I just liked it enough to separate it, is embrace mystery, which sounds like a strange thing to say, but it comes from Colossians. This is Colossians 2, 2 through 3, and then I'll tell you what I mean. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Again, this isn't really its own principle. The idea here, I think, is to tie the, the previous two principles together. Because these feel like they can't belong together to us, this idea that we should be fully committed to each other and we've got to work to get it right. These feel like their intention uh, with each other. I love what Paul says here in Colossians because he uses this word mystery. I think that we do better when we begin to understand that we don't exactly understand how or why this is gonna work, but we do it anyway out of the faith that it will. Because there is here, I think, what Paul is suggesting is a mysterious connection between being united in love, as he says, and reaching understanding, and then having an experience of the mystery of God. There's a connection between these two, really three things that we can't quite understand, but Paul seems to suggest that this is what works. We understand that when we both remain committed to loving one another, when we teach this or when we treat this body as if it's a marriage and we remain committed to finding truth together, that something mysterious happens. Because that is where Jesus is. And that's where the Spirit is. And when you kind of say it that way, it sort of makes sense. Because who is Jesus if not someone who is both fully accepting and loving of us and someone who wants to teach us his way? We see that with the story of the woman at the well, don't we? Where he starts by saying, I have nothing against you either. But now go and sin no more. Both things can happen at the same time. And Jesus models that for us. Okay, so now we'll get back to, I'm actually doing really good on time. So now we'll get back to, uh, to John and we'll, we'll start to sort of land this plane. Because this does matter. It matters a tremendous amount. This is very, very important that we start to live this out and figure out how to do it, especially in the contemporary world that we live in. And so let's look at John here and talk about why this matters so much. So this is John 17, 20 through 20. It's the, the reading that we had this morning. Now remember that this is Jesus praying just before he is crucified. This is in the book of John, his last full prayer. And he's praying for his apostles uh, and also praying for us as the people who come after his apostles. And this is what he says to God. My prayer is not for them alone. 
I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Is this important to Jesus? Yeah, it's one of the very last things that he asks God for. And that's because Jesus recognizes that our ability to reach the world is going to depend on our ability to remain united with one another. He says that twice during this prayer. And the reason that's true is because the world thrives on division. It loves it. It feeds off of it. It's the way everything around us is working all of the time. We know this from our experience with daily life. If you are a political conservative, the world will tell you it's not enough for you to say, I disagree with the social and economic policies of the other side. The world expects that you will say, that's a weak position. I go beyond that. Those people are godless socialists. And the same is true on the other side. If you're politically liberal, the world will tell you it is not strong enough to say, I don't like their financial policies because I don't think it helps enough people. You have to say those people are, I don't know, racist, whatever it is the conservatives are supposed to be. Um, you hear it all the time. Every group has its own cable news network, and this is the constant message. It's what the world is telling us all the time. And not only do we expect you to kind of begin to say these things too, but we'll tell you you're actually weak in your beliefs if you aren't willing to. Um, and that's not just politics. That's maybe the ugliest you know, realm where it happens, but it happens in, in everything. Kent and I were talking about some really interesting research um, into how um, people have changed their church affiliation based on uh, mask policies three years ago, um, which kind of makes sense in the moment, because if you're in a place where you're like, uh, I'm really worried about this, I, I want to be in a place where everyone's wearing a mask and you're somewhere where people aren't wearing masks, you might go, okay, I'm gonna go somewhere else for a while, but you expect them to come back. Um, but that hasn't really happened, and that's been really interesting. The kinds of, of things that we're um, finding to divide ourselves about. And again, the world says not only is that normal, um, the world says that it's expected. Because the world wants to tell you that if you're not like me, you're against me. And I'm against you. And I'll be honest with you, I think that this is a lie from Satan. And I don't really use language like that very often because I'm not one of these like spiritual warfare people. Um, some of you are... Um, I'm glad you're here. You're great. I know that it exists. I just don't think about it much. But I think that I think that the chart we saw earlier is one of Satan's biggest victories against the church. 
because he has been able to convince us that I cannot live around these people who are wrong, wrong, wrong. And what happens, the result of that, is that the church has spent 2,000 years infighting. And if we're attacking each other, we can do nothing in the outside world. Or at least we're very limited. Because if we're busy fighting with the church down the street, then we're not busy doing the work of evangelism that we're put here to do. And so when the world sees our constant infighting, not only do we just not have the time to do it, but when the world looks at the church, and I, and I got news for you, the world does not know the difference between the church of Christ and the disciples of Christ. They do not. Most of them don't know the difference between the church of Christ and the, and the Catholic church. They see Christians. And when the world looks at a church and it's constant infighting, what can it say except they're just like us? What do they have for me? They're just hypocrites, just like I am. Why should I go there? If, on the other hand, we can begin to get this right, if we can begin to love each other and struggle with one another and take the time to say, this is a tough issue, and it's going to take some work to figure out, but I'm in it. And we're going to figure it out together. That's what the world will look at and say, what do they understand that we don't understand? Because I've got the time, I'll tell you this story again. Because I've told it before. I told it when I was talking about communion one day. Uh, and I love this story because I think that it's the real power that the church can have in a contemporary world. And it's the story about the time that Alton and I ran into each other at a Thunder game. Um, some of you remember this story. Maybe if you don't, I'm going to tell it again, but I'll tell it briefly. So um, I'm working a Thunder game. Uh, I'm in uniform. I'm an Oklahoma City police captain. Um, Alton is there in his uh, Cleveland Browns coat to see a Cleveland Cavaliers game. So already you can see the division starting here, uh, right? Um, during a time when, you know, I'll just call it as it is, during a time when it would be very unusual in the culture around us for a six foot, however tall you are, Six four, big, loud black man to like hang out with a white police officer. That is unusual, right? In the particular period that we live in. So about for some, so about one second before Alton gets to me, I see Alton just long enough to break, brace myself for the Alton hug that's coming. <laughs> so Alton grabs me. We spend a minute talking. Alton goes away. My partner who I've worked in that position, or had at that time worked in that position with for years is like. <laughs> and he says, I guess you guys know each other. I said, yeah, that's my brother Alton. We serve as deacons together at our church. And that is the power of the church when we get this right. Because I, pr I promise you, and, and I hate I hate that this is true. I promise you that there are people in Alton's life who, if they had seen that, would say, how could you walk up and embrace a police officer with all that is going on? But the power of the gospel is because we're united in Christ. 
And the stuff that the world tells us is supposed to divide us does not divide us. Now, that, it still might mean that Alton and I have to sit at a table and go, you know, there's some stuff that needs to be worked out here. Um, you know, there's some stuff going on in our culture that both of us are probably going to have to take a stand against. Uh, and it's going to mean a very different message from us than it does from other people. And we may have to wrestle with that for a while. And some of that might be scriptural stuff. But if Alton and I are committed to love one another as brothers in Christ, we will do that work. And the world will look at it and they'll say, what do they have that I don't have? And how do I get it? And that's where we have to get to, church. This is difficult work that we ask the church to do. It's a lot easier to do what that chart does and say, I think it's, I think it's time for us to go different directions. Um, you can keep the name. We'll keep a version of the name. And then people will know which of us they should, they should be with. It's a lot harder to do the work of saying we're going to hold as equal our commitment to one another and our commitment to the teaching of Jesus and we're going to sit with each other in love until we can speak the truth in love because we've struggled to find the truth together and that's my message to you this morning let's start getting this right let's show a world that when we encounter things that can divide us instead our love and our struggle, in fact, unite us even further. Because all of you know, a marriage that has been through some things is the strongest marriage. Okay, that's the message. So, this morning, if you're somebody who's here with us and you're like, I've never experienced that before, but that sounds really great to me. The first step to that to being able to be united with us as a body who is committed to that kind of living uh, is to first be united with Christ. And so this morning, if you're somebody who recognizes that step number one is I've got to get into Christ so that I can get into this body because this body is the kind of place where I'd like to be, then we would like you to come and talk to us this morning. We have an elder here. Um, we will pray for you. We will talk to you about how to uh, get that done. If you're somebody who has other needs uh, that you want the church to pray for or that you want the eldership to pray for when they get together meet, um, then, then this is that time as well. And so if one of those describes you, then please come forward while we sing this song. Come, let us all unite.